Welcome to Off the Clock, a podcast by Procino Wells and Woodland, where we take a team-centered, family-focused approach to serving the estate planning and elder law needs of our community on the Eastern Shore. I'm Megan Seksinski, Client Services Director at the firm, and I'm joined today by Michelle Procino Wells, one of our attorneys. Glad to be here. Thanks, Megan. We're excited to discuss supplemental needs planning. So let's get started. We'll jump right in. Absolutely. Sure. I think it makes sense for us to lay a foundation for you to provide us with a framework about what we mean when we say supplemental needs planning, who that applies to, who should really be listening to today's episode. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start too, because there can be a lot of confusion because no matter what legal topic we talk about, there's always multiple names for the same thing. <laughs> and it just creates so much confusion. Confusion. So, you know, we use the term supplemental needs planning, but it's often referred to as special needs planning. And that seems to make sense when you're talking about the who, you know, who is that planning appropriate for? And it's for people that have loved ones who have special needs. Perhaps they have disabilities, you know, maybe it's a a loved one who has autism or uh, dementia or, you know, even, uh, you know, unfortunately we see a lot of, you know, addiction issues. So it's planning for people that need, you know, special considerations for how, you know, an inheritance should be structured for them. So when families start thinking about their loved ones, people in their lives that supplemental needs planning applies to we hear two common themes and I'd love to announce those, you know, for our listeners sure. and let you kind of talk through them and dispel all the myths. Okay. So let's, I'll try. <laughs> let's go with the first one. Sure. The thought from a family member might be, I want to leave an inheritance to my loved one who's disabled. I want to leave an inheritance to my loved one who is currently using public benefits and I'm not sure exactly the best way to do it. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to include them in my planning. Like I include everyone else. They will receive their inheritance outright in their individual name. So can you yeah. talk us through the sure. clause there? Yeah. So that usually is a big mistake, you know, so, you know, going with supplemental needs planning, you know, it's, it's to create an inheritance that will supplement any benefits that an individual might otherwise already be receiving or might be, you know, wanting to preserve eligibility to be able to receive in the future. So that's why we call them, you know, supplemental needs trusts, you know, so it's intended to supplement as opposed to supplant or replace benefits. And so, you know, that's what we're talking about. You know, the biggest benefits that we see um, a disabled person receiving are SSI benefits, um, or Medicaid benefits, you know, SSI, that's supplemental security income. You know, there's all different kinds of government benefit programs. Some are need-based, you, know, you have to prove financial eligibility. Some are just more purely dis- disability-based. So you always have to understand what types of benefits you're seeking eligibility for. But if a person is receiving SSI benefits and they receive an inheritance, or if they're um, receiving Medicaid benefits and they receive an inheritance, they will lose their eligibility for those programs. And what that usually means is that whatever they inherit ends up getting eaten up, paying medical expenses, you know, paying for expenses that they would have been receiving those benefits for. So yeah, just, you know, putting your head in the sand and saying, you know, I'm just not going to deal with this, you know, is a, a really unfortunate, you know, 
situation when you have, you know, and I've seen it, unfortunately, way too many times, you know, a family comes to us after a loved one has passed away and they have this cookie cutter will that they created themselves or that they got from who knows where that didn't address, you know, the potential for a disabled beneficiary. And we've seen those people lose their benefits. It's really sad. It really is. Sometimes just as sad is mm -hmm. the other common theme, the other common misconception. So I hear a flavor of what you described. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a little bit of those ideas. And so I decide to leave my inheritance to my disabled loved one via someone else, mm -hmm. like maybe their sibling. Yes. Can you talk through that? Yes. Again, uh, in my opinion, another big mistake. You know, we see that a lot where a person will decide, well, I'm just going to, you know, disinherit my disabled, you know, child because I don't want them to lose their eligibility. So instead, I'm just going to leave all the estate to, you know, their that person's sibling. And I know the sibling will take care of them. And in an ideal world, the sibling will hopefully do their best and try to take care of their, you know, disabled sibling. Um, but so unfortunately, we don't live in an ideal world. And so, you know, what can happen in those situations is, you know, the, the beneficiary that receives all of the assets, you know, what happens if that person unexpectedly passes away? or if that person gets divorced, or if that person becomes disabled. I've actually seen that happen, you know, or if that person is sued, if that person, you know, all the risks, or if that person just decides, mm -hmm. you know, I really want that new car, or, you know, my, oh, my sibling is fine. They're, you know, they get what they need and I'm going to just use these assets for myself. So there are so many things that can go wrong, you know, with entrusting someone else to care for a disabled person. And really at the end of the day, it's not best practice. You know, a disabled person is who needs protection the most. And so to disinherit a disabled person, you know, I just always think that that's really sad because there are planning opportunities that are available. And so to be specific, one of the best planning opportunities and what we're really discussing today is the Supplemental Needs Trust. Like you said earlier, also commonly known as the Special Needs Trust. Right. And so maybe we could describe the basics of that document and compare maybe contingent language within something like a revocable living trust could be an example mm -hmm. yes. compared to a standalone supplemental needs trust. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, supplemental needs trust, special needs trust, whichever name you call them, um, you know, it's always going to be a trust that's going to set aside assets for a disabled person in a way that won't jeopardize that person's eligibility for benefits. So that's what I was just saying earlier. You, you don't have to disinherit a disabled person because there is a way to plan for them and this planning is permitted under federal and state law it's not like this is some hidden where you're hiding assets or doing something that's inappropriate and so yeah there's two different ways that you can do that kind of planning one is we call it a standalone supplemental needs trust and that's where you know someone when they're doing their estate planning they're going to create a separate document that is going to spell out, you know, how assets will be administered, you know, on behalf of a disabled person 
again, so as to not jeopardize their Medicaid eligibility. Oftentimes, those trusts are standby trusts, meaning that if I create that trust today um, and it says, you know, upon my death, whatever share would have gone to, you know, my, my daughter, Mary, mm -hmm. <laughs> that Mary's share instead will be funneled into this separate trust that's sitting there waiting to receive assets upon my death. And then once Mary's inheritance goes into that trust, you know, the trustee of that trust, who I get to name, is going to have all kinds of rules for how they can manage those funds. The other way to do it is, you know, if I have a revocable trust or even a will for that matter, um, you can have standby provisions that are embedded into another estate planning document. So if I don't have the standalone trust, I can put supplemental needs trust provisions in my revocable trust or in um, a will. And those are often used you know, when maybe I don't have a beneficiary who's disabled right now, but doesn't mean that I won't in the future, or maybe I have a beneficiary who I think could maybe need that kind of protection in the future, but I'm not sure. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't create the separate trust. So that's always going to be you know, planning considerations, you know, that's part of the conversation that we have with clients when they need those kinds of extra protections. When the standalone supplemental needs trust is appropriate, I think it's really cool that multiple parties can fund that trust. Could you talk to that? Yes, absolutely. And I, I've, I've had that happen so many times where, you know, it's nice, like, again, if I have a disabled child that I want to do that planning for, so I'll keep using Mary, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so if I have a daughter, Mary, that I want to do that planning for, and I've created that separate standalone trust, well, if Mary's grandparents want to leave some assets to her upon their death, they can name that trust. Or if her, you know, aunts and uncles or other family members, you know, that trust can receive assets from anyone. And so it is a great way because oftentimes when there are, you know, a, when there is a disabled person within a family, oftentimes, you know, multiple family members do want to try to support that person. And so it's a great tool in that way. So like so many trusts, a trustee or a succession of trustees are named in this document. And when the supplemental needs trust is funded, let's say by way of an inheritance in our example of Mary, mm -hmm. how can the trustee use those funds? What can they be used for? So that is a really important thing. A trustee of a supplemental needs trust always needs to make sure they get guidance. And especially too, because the rules change periodically. Um, you know, a trustee of a standard revocable trust um, can oftentimes get by with a lot of common sense. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to being a trustee of a supplemental needs trust, because there are very strict rules for how the assets can be used. Again, it goes back to that supplemental use of the funds as opposed to supplanting or replacing um, you know, expenses that, that are supposed to be covered by those government benefits. So generally, and, and the biggest um, risk is that supplemental security income benefit. Mm -hmm. If a trustee uses the funds inappropriately, it can, it, there can be actually a dollar for dollar reduction in that SSI benefit. So it's really important for a trustee to get some education 
So basically, the, the trust funds aren't supposed to be used for the person's support or maintenance, which those are really broad terms, but you know, that usually relates to like shelter expenses, you know, housing, groceries, meals, um, and, and cash. You know, you're really not supposed to give the beneficiary cash because that will reduce the SSI benefit. When you're looking at um, the Medicaid benefit, there is more flexibility. There's typically not going to be a dollar for dollar reduction like the SSI. Currently in 2023, that SSI benefit, it's $914 a month. So depending on how much assets are in the, the, the supplemental needs trust, sometimes people will actually forego receiving that SSI benefit so that they have more flexibility for how the supplemental needs trust can be used. So a lot of planning considerations, but you know, we see them used for family activities for you know, going to the movies, recreation, mm. trips, entertainment, um, home improvements. Mm. Like if a person's paying rent, then they really need to use their benefits for the rent. But if they need, you know, new furniture, or they want to have the, you know, their place painted, you know, those kinds of things um, can be used. Utilities, um, the funds can be used, professional services, caregivers, medical equipment, um, a vehicle, tuition, if they're able to, to take classes. So there's a lot of ways that the funds can be used, um, but it's just always you have to be careful um, to, to really uh, get guidance. Mm -hmm. Sticking with our example of Mary, <laughs> her trustee, trustees, plural, maybe, appropriately used her supplemental needs trust monies throughout her lifetime, mm -hmm. and then she passed away, yes. and there's money left in her trust. Right. Where does that go? Yeah, and so that's another nice way, um, or another nice benefit of creating the trust, because you get to control that. So, you know, maybe Mary has siblings. Um, and so you say, you know, at Mary's passing, whatever assets are left now get distributed to her siblings. Or maybe she had children and it could go to her children. So that's something that you decide when you're drafting the trust. Um, you can also, in some cases, give Mary the ability um, to direct, you know, where the assets will go upon her death. So a lot of flexibility, again, depending on the circumstances and, you know, what's appropriate. But it's nice that you can control that and make those decisions when you create the trust. It is really nice. And this is probably a good place to create a distinction between what we've been talking about, which is a third party supplemental needs trust mm -hmm. versus a first party yes. supplemental needs trust and when those trusts might be used. Right. And it is a great distinction because this is one of those things, you know, you got to love the internet, <laughs> but yep. people, people get on the internet and they start reading about supplemental needs trust or special needs trust and they get really confused because there are these two different kinds. So yeah, what we've been talking about is what's considered a third party supplemental needs trust. So that means that you know, one person is doing the planning for someone else. So again, if it's me and my daughter, Mary, you know, I'm doing the planning with my assets. And I'm saying, you know, upon my death, my assets are going to go into this trust for Mary's benefit. So I'm considered the third party. Um, and so I get to direct all of that. Um, in that case, you know, those funds can stay in the trust for Mary's lifetime. And then as we just mentioned, you know, at Mary's later death, you know, I, since I originally created the trust, I get to direct what happens to those assets upon her death and I can name beneficiaries. 
So you contrast that to a first party supplemental needs trust. And that would be if Mary has her own assets. So maybe, you know, Mary has worked and has money in the bank. Maybe Mary received funds from a lawsuit. Maybe Mary has received funds from an inheritance with someone that, that didn't plan as well mm -hmm. as they could have. Yeah. <laughs> and so Mary now has assets. But again, if Mary is already receiving benefits, she can lose her eligibility. Or if she wants to apply for benefits, she needs to figure out, you know, what are her options? So she can create a first party supplemental needs trust. So she can create a trust to benefit herself. First party special needs trusts are permitted by statute, by federal law, but there are a lot of rules that have to be followed um, in order for you know a person like Mary um, to be able to do that kind of planning. And one of those rules is that if there are funds left in that trust when Mary passes away, that money has to be paid to the state um, up to the amount of benefits the state has paid you know, to Mary or for her benefit during her lifetime. It's called a payback requirement. So first party trusts, you know, have this payback requirement, whereas third party trusts don't. So it's always really important to make that distinction and to understand the differences. Clients will often ask, you know, so again, in this case with Mary, that if Mary has money, well, can't Mary just give that money to somebody else and then they create a third party trust? And no, um, I wish it were that easy, you know, but that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, Social Security or the state Medicaid department that, you know, they they know to look for those kinds of things. Um, so but but the good news is, even though there's a lot of rules, um, the, a first party trust is a way that a disabled person can still shelter assets if they have them. Mm -hmm. um, they just then there are a lot of restrictions, too, on how the funds can be used. Yeah, people get nervous about those guidelines and those rules, but they really are worthwhile navigating Absolutely. for the benefits that they let the person earn. Right. We've talked about some of the most common uses for supplemental needs trust, but there are other times that we use this strategy, like heavily in our elder law practice. Yes. And I wonder if you could speak to that for a moment. Absolutely. You know, we work with a lot of married couples where, um, you know, one spouse uh, you know, has a diagnosis, you know, has dementia, where we're helping um, folks, you know, become eligible for Medicaid benefits. We do a lot of work. Um, some of our most rewarding work is where we help, you know, married couples obtain Medicaid eligibility to receive care in their home. And, you know, where one spouse needs assistance, uh, you know, the other spouse is that caregiver, that 24-7 caregiver. And so we love it when we're able to do planning to help them preserve their assets, but get help, you know, in the home that the state pays the cost of. So in those scenarios, you know, we talk about the ill spouse, the one who needs care that we're helping establish Medicaid eligibility for. And then we talk about the well spouse, you know, that caregiver spouse. So we do a lot of this supplemental needs trust planning for those well spouses because, you know, we recognize that if, you know, we call it the well spouse, right? But we recognize that if all of a sudden that well spouse passes away and they have simple wills in place that leave all assets to each other, you can have a pretty disastrous you know, situation where if the well spouse all of a sudden passes, now the ill spouse is inheriting 
all of the assets and you're back to square one in trying to shelter assets for Medicaid eligibility. So we do a lot of planning um, where that well spouse will create documents, won't dis disinherit the right. ill spouse. Again, it's not ever going to be best practice, um, but instead can create one of these supplemental needs trusts so that if the ill spouse suddenly passes away, the ill spouse's Medicaid eligibility is still protected. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really great planning opportunity. We even do those a lot of times when couples, you know, maybe they're not quite ready to apply for Medicaid yet, but they're looking into the future. And so they're thinking, gosh, yeah, maybe we really should, you know, revise our estate planning, you know, to do that kind of planning to protect so that if the one spouse passes, the other spouse doesn't become the owner of all assets mm -hmm. and it creates a better, you know, scenario for Medicaid planning at that point. In those average married couple cases within our elder law department, this is approximately you know where the client pauses and thinks, oh gosh, I hadn't thought of that. Right. Because just by way of the ill spouse being ill, they've kind of unconsciously, always unconsciously yes. started kind of thinking, well, that'll be the spouse that passes first. Right. Right. And that's not. No. And actually, what we we have you know we've done this kind of planning for a long time, and we have seen it. Um, be a blessing in many, many families mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we've seen, uh, unfortunately, many of those spouses who, you know, you think will be the survivor end up something happens suddenly. And, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the, the original ill spouse is protected. Mm -hmm. That's right. Another topic that seems loosely related to supplemental needs trust planning certainly falls under the category of supplemental needs planning is the ABLE account. Can yes. we discuss what an ABLE account is, some common misconceptions? Can we yes, sure. Yeah, ABLE accounts are um, a really great planning opportunity um, for someone that is receiving um, especially SSI benefits again. It's, it's always SSI and Medicaid. You know, these benefits also relate to, you know, things like subsidized housing. There can be some food stamp. You know, there's other programs, but the SSI and Medicaid are always the biggest programs that we're trying to achieve eligibility for. So an ABLE account applies when you have a person who has a disability that began prior to age 26. So these are often, you know, for, for, you know, someone who was born with a disability. Um, and you can contribute currently, um, you can contribute up to $17,000 per year into an account that gets, you know, set up for the disabled person. And then they can actually accumulate up to $100,000 in that account before it will affect their SSI benefits. Big number. It's a very big number because, you know, ordinarily the SSI limit is $2,000. So this allows a person to set aside a nest egg of a sizable amount of funds that won't jeopardize eligibility for their government benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, these supplemental needs trusts and the ABLE account <laughs> are really the only ways that you can do that. So these ABLE accounts are, are really great. Um, and, you know, they, they, if the person, if the disabled person 
is able to manage that account themselves because oftentimes they they can you know they're not so disabled that someone else they they, they can manage it themselves which i think is wonderful mm-hmm. to give them you know to give a disabled person that kind of independence mm-hmm. um, or they can be set up so that a custodian or a trustee can manage it for the disabled person um, so you know there's all kinds of rules again mm-hmm. on and there's certain financial institutions that can create them but i'll tell you if if anyone listening is at all interested, you can just Google ABLE account and you'll get all the information. You know, the state of Delaware has a great website that tells you all about how you can create one in the state of Delaware. And I'm sure probably every state does. Mm-hmm. And real quickly, don't you sometimes get the misconception that ABLE accounts replace a supplemental needs trust? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, people, but, you know, again, it's always going to be where you really need to get some counsel and really, you know, learn what kinds of planning is, you know, what kinds of planning opportunities exist and what's the best fit for that person's particular situation. Because, you know, an ABLE account is going to be, again, it's going to be a first party scenario typically where, you know, again, we go back to Mary, you know, if Mary has, you know, if Mary has worked and she's accumulated $20,000, you know, Mary doesn't need to set up a first party supplemental needs trust for that. She can use an ABLE account. But if Mary has received, you know, half a million dollars from a lawsuit, that's going to be too much to put in. An, so that's when she would want to use a first party mm-hmm. trust. If it's a matter of, you know, a grandparent wants to leave money to Mary, well, typically they're going to do that in a third party trust because there's no payback with the ABLE accounts. There, well, in Delaware, we're very fortunate. There is not a payback provision in Delaware. So those funds can go to named beneficiaries, but most states um, do require payback even with ABLE accounts. So, you know, there's a lot of rules to navigate. Really important to get with a qualified professional who understands these rules and can help you determine, you know, what's appropriate given your particular situation. Help you marry all these really cool planning ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we can wrap up on this. I was just hoping for our listeners sake, we could mention some key milestones for a person. Like I'm thinking of an 18th birthday and how the law starts to separate, you know, what, Previously, it identified as a parent-child relationship, how it now recognizes this 18-year-old as an adult and what that means for the family who's supporting this person. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it really is important. I mean, I I think every 18-year-old should create a power of attorney. So that, you know, they have someone, you know, named as their agent, you know, if um, something happens and they need that kind of assistance, Um, you know, if a person um, is disabled and not and doesn't have capacity to be able to do that kind of planning themselves, then it's really important upon that person's 18th birthday to pursue guardianship. Um, you know, oftentimes parents think that they will always have the legal authority to act for their child. Um, but at age 18, that stops whether that child is disabled or not. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of families 
you know, obtain legal guardianship for their disabled child once they turn 18. Again, if the child has capacity, um, you know, can, can understand and can sign um, a power of attorney document, you know, that's always going to be the best scenario. But, you know, lots of times that's not possible. So a court-appointed guardianship, you know, would, would definitely be recommended so that if something comes up, you know, that family has authority to act for their disabled loved one. Is it fair to summarize our time together today by saying that expert counsel <laughs> is really important? In this area of the law, it really, really is. I mean, I know we, we say that, for, I think, every podcast because, you know, the, the work that we do is very specialized. But this area, because there are a lot of rules. Um, and again, you know, a disabled person is who needs the most protection. So you want to make sure you get it right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I can't emphasize that enough, you know, deciding what type of planning is appropriate, making sure that, you know, the appropriate documents are created with, with maximum flexibility built into those documents. And then certainly once a trustee starts administering those documents, you know, making sure that they get good, thorough advice on you know how to then you know serve as trustee so that they don't run afoul of these rules yeah. michelle thank you for sharing so much with our listeners always my pleasure <laughs> thanks for being with us today on off the clock if you'd like to learn more about us visit our website at pwwlaw.com of course you can contact us directly by calling 302-628-4140 or emailing info at pwwlaw.com. We're here to help you plan today to protect your families tomorrow. See you next time. Anything discussed on Off the Clock is for general informational purposes only and is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. To obtain the most reliable guidance, listeners are encouraged to seek personalized advice from qualified professionals.